And that means it's time for the second hour of the Dr. and Mrs. Future program. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends. Ladies and gentlemen, KSEO presents the Dr. Future Show. If you would like to join in our show today, you can call us at 831-479-1080. That's 831-479-1080. And now, your host, Dr. Future. Hey, folks. Welcome back to the show. One of the big headlines this week in the news was that there were massive plumes of searing rock, possible volcanism going on in our neighbor on Mars. On Mars. On our Mars. neighborhood. Yeah, never mind. Our solar Hawaii. neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hawaii Isn't was that we, interesting yeah. that Hawaii and Mars are both volcanic at the same yeah, well, time? Well, at least the news about them is. Yeah. And it's quite fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. We thought Mars was dead for a long time. This new information is changing things a little bit about how we think about Mars. To help us understand this a little bit more, we're bringing on Dr. Bruce Damer, an old friend of the shows and, and us for, for many, many years. And Bruce is a multidisciplinary scientist and researcher and public speaker. And he's um, been working on a new model for understanding how life began on the Earth and probably beyond and he's been involved yeah. in helping figure out where to send missions to Mars. He's definitely a member of the space community. And spaceship designer. And spaceship designer. Yes. That's right. Looking at the expansion of human civilization beyond Earth. And Bruce is one of the pioneers in that arena. Welcome to the show, Bruce. Thank you, Dr. Oh, Future, welcome, Mrs. Bruce. Future. Yeah, and we've got Bobby in, in here as well. He's close attention. Hi, Bruce. Yeah. Remember Bobby? Oh. Hi, Bobby. Hello. Yeah. Hey, Bruce, of course, yeah. Great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for coming, Bruce. I appreciate it. Now, now what do you think of this Mars information? For the uninitiated, can you tell us a little bit more about what's been discovered and its significance? What's amazing is that the Mars InSight lander, you know, which is detecting Mars quakes, it landed on top of what looks like an active magmatic plume that's coming up from... And it wasn't even considered that Mars could have these plumes because we have one right under Hawaii. That's how Hawaii got made. Mm. A thin little piece of crust and a plume under it, and you get this uh, volcano in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. So it's amazing that Mars is more active than we thought. And not only is there a magmatic plume, but there's evidence of recent liquid water on the surface within millions of years rather than billions of years. And oh, uh, so that. That wow. could have brought Martians up to the surface. So we call that the first and last outpost for life on Mars is those rock environments where hot water is still in there. If there is a Mars microbiota, then they could potentially come up on hot springs. Does that mean there might be fossils of potential life if, if life ever existed there? It's possible. Certainly any hydrothermal environment, any hot spring environment on Earth preserves evidence for life really well in minerals called sinters. Hmm. And so if we, we found one, the Spirit Rover found one at, at Columbia Hills, an actual sort of ancient Yellowstone. Wow. And so these are incredibly good sites to go. And if we can get those rocks back or slice those rocks in place, we might see chemical evidence that life has been there, certainly no actual living organisms. That's out of the question at this point in your estimation? Fossils, not living organisms. 
Yeah, it's, Mars is pretty sterilizing. It's vacuum atmosphere and perchlorates in the soil and high mm. ultraviolet. It's very dry. It's what you would call a sterilizing environment, with the exception of in the ice cap, maybe at those edges of those ice sheets, there's some liquid water that's preserved under there so that you're close to the surface with liquid water. Mm. But Mars is a, a very harsh harsh environment yeah you said a sterilizing environment for at least for the likes of our kind of life yeah, yeah. i like to call it a fixer-upper planet <laughs> right <laughs> would you say that there was a time in martian history where it was more like earth yeah it's called the noachian hesperian period it's just over four billion years ago to like 3.5 3.2 billion years ago there were certainly a hydrosphere those liquid oceans there would have been clouds with rainfall, all kinds of things going on because we could see the evidence of that on wow. the surface. It's sort of entombed there. But then Mars lost its atmosphere. It lost its water. Yeah, because it didn't have that protective magnetosphere to, to keep it all together. Uh, is that because the, the core stopped spinning or something on that level? On that level, exactly. And it, it turns out that what well, Dave Deemer and I at UC Santa Cruz use Mars as an example for a world that what we, we describe it as urable, or it has urability factors, that ur being a, a German root word for early or, or origin, like it's a place where life could have started. Mm. But you talk about urable worlds and habitable worlds, and habitable worlds are if you dumped the bilge from your spacecraft in the ocean of that world, the microbes might survive, whereas a, an urable world is a world that has all the right ingredients to begin life. And so early Mars potentially was herbal. It might not have been. It might have been missing some things, but certainly early Earth was perhaps more herbal than Mars. But it's a new framework we published in July. Huh, herbal. Now, what I've heard is that there are the amino acids that are found in, in living systems have all been found in meteorites and asteroids, all five, uh, but no uh, actual life itself yet. But the amino acids seem to be everywhere. So do you think that that suggests that the panspermia theory might be true? Well, it's a big difference between, say, a, a living microbe that hitches a ride on a space rock yeah. and manages to survive all those conditions, which are also quite sterilizing, uh -huh. get to another world from some place where it originated and then populate that world. That's a long reach. But mm. we do know that, as you say, the amino acids and and the fatty acids and the nucleobases, sugars, all kinds of things are made in space when solar systems form, and they just rain down on planets, on herbal worlds in the beginnings of that solar system. And it's literally filling the warm little ponds where we think life can start. It's all coming from space. The nature of life is to rain down from space, huh? <laughs> <laughs> the soup pot of Garwin's warm little pond has got all the ingredients. It has to be stirred to make the first microbes but it has a lot of the ingredients just raining in just mm -hmm. coming in so it's possible so is it possible that because this happened four billion years ago that life could have started there first and then hopscotched here somehow yeah i think i forget who made this sort of uh, prognostication about 2025 20, years ago that we could all be martians that because <laughs> mars actually sort of cooled down and settled down earlier than the earth did because the earth yeah. had that big impact that created the moon and became a molten ball again Huh. So it kind of got reset. Yeah, um, yeah. Interesting. Only, Listen, uh, can you yeah. hold that thought for a sec? We've got to go to a commercial break. We'll be right back to be continued. Uh, we're talking to Dr. Bruce Damer about uh, 
Origins of Life, and we're talking about Mars right now as possibly we might all be Martians. <laughs> Originally. <laughs> we'll be right back. It's a bit of a stretch, but yeah, let's yeah. No, ponder the possibilities. Gotta, gotta think these things through, Mrs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I'm on Earth. We're talking to Dr. Bruce Damer about life on Mars, or the potential of life on Mars. We got to the point of looking at how life might have evolved first on Mars, because Mars was more like an Earth-type planet four billion years ago. And then you were talking about taking it off-planet. How would life even get from Mars to Earth if it had happened there first? It would be like a -a whack-a-mole. Type thing. There'd be a there'd be a big rock hitting Mars, blowing some of the crust material off, and it floats around. And some piece of Mars that has the microbes in them, probably very very low metabolism, maybe really dried out, uh. and then it comes into Earth's environment and then lands in just the right environment for those microbes to actually flourish. And it's a long shot, and it's, survive. Yeah. It's, it's not really testable, so it's kind of one of those things. It's not even a hypothesis; it's conjecture, or really? we call it in e- science. We call it hand waving, <laughs> be- because a thesis, it, another, not a theory. It's a, a notion. notion. It's, okay. The only way to verify this would be if you got a microbe, a living microbe from the Earth, and one from the Mars. You compared their genetic code, and if they were pretty close then we know there's a common origin, but the origin could have been on the Earth. And then Ah. the microbe... So we find no microbes on Mars. And this is a long process, too, because we have to drill into rocks and we have to drill multiple places. And it would probably take 100 years or 200 years to say definitively there's no life here. It's a long and costly thing. And then we would determine there was only one origin in the solar system that we knew of, which is Earth. Earth, yeah. Well, what about underneath the surface? Isn't that more conducive to a microbial activity away from the sterilization effects of yeah, the sun? Yeah, definitely, Dr. Future. So the first couple of missions that have attempted to do drilling have, been, have landed there. The European mission, which is delayed by the Russian-Ukraine war, yeah. has a drill on it. But that's delayed because they have to change the launcher. They're not working with Russia anymore. Mm, so that one, it's a very, very long process. And who knows, maybe Elon will get there before a sample return mission will get there. Who, who's to say? Yeah, yeah. But not to the 2030s at the earliest at this point, eh? Yeah, it's it's a long ways out. And mm. there isn't a funded sample return mission. There isn't sort of one that's actually formally on the books and being built and tested. And they're, they're, So it's 10, 15 years. Mm. Well, we do have a question from Mrs. Future. She was kind of wondering if you subscribe to the punctuated equilibrium idea that evolution is mostly smooth and then has periods of rapid change and then smooth again for a while. That's a very good question, Mrs. Future. This was an idea debated between Richard Dawkins and Stephen Jay Gould in the 90s. Yes and no, in that the evidence from the Burgess Shale, this fossil deposit up in near where I grew up in British Columbia, seems to show this explosion of animals, the first animals with bodies. Mm-hmm. So that was considered sort of a punctuated equilibrium. But then more evidence comes from basically the genetic record that there were earlier ancestors we just haven't 
found any evidence for them or we're starting to see evidence. So it's just like if you find one great big fossil cache, you might conclude that, oh, things happen all at once. But truthfully, it, it's just because you have an evidence bias mm. going on. But the other thing is that when oxygen appeared, that was a nonlinear jump in the availability of energy to organisms. So hmm. oxygen shot up in a certain period because of the activities of life, and that powered a giant punctuated equilibrium for mm -hmm. sure because things that needed to breathe came into being. Yeah, oxygen suddenly became center for life and the yeah. formation of it. Yeah, because yeah. until that point you had all these microbes, you know, stinky pond scum kinds of things that were just cranking along for two, three billion years. they were just fermenting those, to stay warm, those right? Those, and those lowly anaerobics. Yes, yes. And they just had only a certain amount of energy to work with. That's why there was very little evolution going on for the longest period of time. Mm -hmm. Because they were stuck. They were sort of stuck in an energetic cul-de-sac. Uh-huh. Yeah, their main job was to sunbathe. Then yes, exactly. <laughs> then along came O. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <They> started breathing. <laughs> yeah, and, and big eukaryotic cells with energy centers called mitochondria. And, and now, now that, that's an interesting element right there. Now, didn't some kind of biological deal happen between mitochondria and the genetic, the anaerobic our, cells our that, DNA? You know, that, became, that wanted to be become more sophisticated wasn't there a yeah wasn't yeah, there, there a was, marriage of separate organisms yeah two organisms the single yeah. cells that became us it was proposed by lynn margulis who proposed a symbiogenesis that the big chunky organelles of chloroplasts and plants and mitochondria and animal yeah. or uh, fungal bodies are actually separate organisms they were absorbed into a bigger cell and then they co evolved so they literally the ecosystem the playground for mitochondria is inside cells and they're doing they have their own lives they're dividing they have their own dna they're just cranking along and in your body you might have 13 billion human cells 100 billion bacterial cells in your gut but you have 14 quadrillion mitochondria in your human cells that are churning on 14 quadrillion so holy moly these, these mitochondria win the numbers game well, you know, as far mm -hmm. as their organisms on their own. Well, they're like you know, colonies they're, of mitochondria in every cell? Yeah, colonies of mitochondria. The cell is their forest or their ecosystem, right. and they do their own thing. And they the provide cells. the energy for the cell, huh? Yeah, yeah, symbiogenesis. Right, and they're both believed to be original evolutionary development here on Earth. They both came from Earth, not from some yeah. other source. Yeah. yeah, all the DNA everything came from seems, Earth, as far as we know, yeah, right? Yeah, we never find anything that doesn't oh, have a. It has the same genetic code, oh. the same amino acids, the whole deal. What about the older life forms? What about the mitochondria that didn't choose to merge? Did they exist still? Were yeah, they is there some bacteria out there that's died? breathing outside the cell? <laughs> yeah, there are three branches. You know, this archaea or this new branch that was discovered way back in the 70s by Carl Woese. These things live down in hot springs in Yellowstone, and they're kind of considered sort of a pretty primitive branch. But truthfully, all microbes are kind of advanced now. The super primitive ones just couldn't compete, so they're not around anymore. Mm. Mm. Those are the archaea? The archaea are sort of considered that mm -hmm. an earlier branch. Mm -hmm. And then the prokaryotes ended up becoming the eukaryotes, which became us. Mm-hmm. And the main difference is whether the environment stayed aerobic or anaerobic. 
Right. Well, we we don't know because the well the anaerobic thing came in at about the right time to power the big cells that had the mitochondria in them. Mm-hmm. And in fact, oxygen was a toxin. It was like atmospheric toxin. It's not like CO two now for us. It's a problem, and so you end up with organisms dying because there's just too much oxygen around. Mm-hmm. So the ones that that survived had to harness that oxygen. Oxygen like breaks everything up. It's a huge caustic compound. So those organisms that fit, yeah, figured out how to turn, radical. yeah, it is. It is pretty radical. Turning that poison into food, <laughs> you know. It's, yes. Yeah. Into thirty times the energy that you energy could food. without it. Yeah. The Krebs cycle, the citric acid cycle, thirty times the energy. So it was a superpower, like plugging into the mains, and it just left the previous life forms behind. Huh? Probably, probably it's evolutionary. Like keep up or go away. There must have been some evolutionary pr- pressure on them to do that. Well, you know, the still the, the Earth is still a progenoic planet. It's still vastly dominated by microbial communities. The original models are still outnumber everything. They go down to five miles down into the crust, and they're the powerhouse of the planet. And they'll be around after plants, animals, and fungi are gone. Mm-hmm. You know, after all this blips out, there'll still be microbes everywhere until the sun consumes the earth. Uh-huh. They're the last. The, the, the first, fir- the last, and we're made of them. The Alpha and the Omega. Yeah. <laughs> and we're part, and it, we're part them, I guess. So. And Frank Drake, you know, passed away two months ago. And yeah, we did a, very sad. a talk down at the SETI Institute in ways to continue his work. Really? And so wow. we now have this urability framework, which is, the Frank Drake equation is these factors that say how many planets might have the civilization we can contact. And and one of the factors is how many planets start life. So we're now putting the parameters around that. Mm-hmm. Really? Uh, wow. Yeah. And, and huh. so it's, it's in a way we're carrying on Frank Drake's legacy and getting some more solid numbers, especially as James Webb and Tess and, and Kepler see all these exoplanets. You know, you guys have been reporting on the exoplanet atmospheres. Yes, yes, yes. That was uh, yeah. a big part of the James Webb telescope. The photochemistry. Yeah. 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 Yes. We can now work with these tens of thousands of exoplanets and models and say which ones are urable, which ones have the conditions to begin life, rather than just the idea of habitability, mm-hmm. you know, liquid water being present. I see. So you're involved in trying to come up with the new criteria for assessing exoplanets as urable planets? That's the proposal we're putting out. So whenever we run into an exoplanet person on the street, we just take them to coffee and try Bring, to, <laughs> have try you to get thought about it this way? Irritability. <laughs> it's right, better than right. irritability. And <laughs> the, the, irritability. Talk, uh, the listeners to Dr. Future can find it. SETI Institute SETI talk by Bruce Damer and Dave Deemer, Urabil Worlds, uh-huh. and you can see it online. It was put online last week. Uh-huh, so nice. it's, it's all uh-huh. there. So. And so finding CO2 is a big, meaningful thing as far as that all goes, huh? It could be. I mean, it, it, if you find glints off of the water that might be there, say an ocean or something, that's, that's another biosignature. But it, it's a tough one because you're not going to get much detail about the surface. No. Um, yeah, you just see a little blip of light get brighter or darker uh, <laughs> and some periodicity. Extreme <laughs> science, you know, pulling all that information from that. Wow. Yeah, there's, there's methane in Mars's atmosphere, but we don't know if that's a biological source or not. So huh. that, that's not a clear biosignature. Yeah. Uh-huh. Hey, Bruce, would you be willing to stay on for one more segment? And we got some questions coming in. Sure. Yeah. All right. All right. We'll be right back. We're talking to Dr. Bruce okay. Damer and uh, Origin of Life and in the solar system and beyond. Be right back. 
Okay, welcome back to the show. We're talking to Dr. Bruce Damer and the field of astrobiology, you might say, looking at uh, life through the universe. We got a question from Jan in Connecticut who wants to know whether or not was there life on Venus at some point you know, or potential. It's possible, but the conditions on Venus are even harsher. But wasn't that a runaway greenhouse effect in like billions of years ago? It wasn't like that? Yeah. Yeah, we don't know exactly if Venus ever had liquid water oceans, but certainly it lost them early on. It was just a little too close to our sun. Mm -hmm. And so it, all that boiled off into the atmosphere and then the hydrogen is stripped away and you're left with CO2 that's 90 times the pressure of our atmosphere and hundreds of degrees at the surface uh, it would melt tin and lead and other things. Venus is tough, and there have been a proposal that maybe life could be in the clouds of Venus. It's, it's hard to imagine life starting there. If it started there, it could have been sterilized, or it would be living in the rocks. Yes, yes, cooler. yes. And I've heard, I've heard that some layers of the atmosphere might be able to support some extremophiles from our planet. Yeah, and there was a, I think it was, was it phosgene that was detected? There was some kind of detection of maybe a life biosignature several months back but yeah. then other co other colleagues said look there are others you know there's non-biological sources don't get too excited yeah but it's increased interest in this and maybe we'll see some submissions to try to sample that atmosphere well i guess if we're agents not just of our species but of biology generally would it be ethical to put extremophiles into that atmosphere to see if they lived well, you know, it'd be, uh, it would confuse the science because then we couldn't ever really figure out the Venusians from the, <laughs> the Terrans. So, um, yeah, what, you do have that issue, don't we? Typically. <laughs> Cross-pollination uh, causes problems like that. And inside yeah. the bodies of the landers and rovers on Mars is, uh, are, are biofilms. You uh, know, but they're not on the exterior. They're sort of asleep in a way that you can't completely sterilize the surface. So what you're saying is we've already contaminated Mars with our microbes that are hiding in the bellies of our spaceships. They are there. Undoubtedly, they are there. So there is life on Mars. It's from Earth, and it's temporary. It's, you know, it's not going to be there for forever yeah. but it, it's definitely there in the refuges of the belly they're of not the intentional vehicles. they're not intentional hmm. yeah. And, yeah i and mean think how hard it would be for them to survive even if they tried yeah right? <laughs> i mean we're talking about things that can be showered off if people come home right <laughs> yeah 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 it's a, such a fascinating time right now that we have actual models that work for origin of life where we can form polymers and little pools we can Mm. Take our stuff. We took our stuff out to fly geyser near Burning Man. Uh, yes, that's an amazing geyser. I'm going to say it looks like some alien sculpture. And you guys went there years ago. Right? Oh yeah. yes, yeah. We had some great adventures there. I wouldn't call it a scientific expedition though. <laughs> yeah, we, we, mud people. We, we went there with yeah. the, the BBC of all people, and we did our wet dry cycling with fly geyser water mm -hmm. ah. uh, just a little pipetter and i was just drying down the slides and we were able to form rna from in fly geyser at the temperature and the ph of fly geyser so you were at the fly geyser and you're able to create rna is that what you said from yeah from its building blocks mm -hmm. so huh. it stitches it together like a zipper when you dry down the solution and if you got lipid present you add a little drop of hot spring water and you'll see little compartments form that have RNA in them. You can stain them and they'll glow. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, they glow in the dark. And so, for the uninitiated, but, that is a precursor to life. It right? potentially really is because all those materials potentially can come from space. 
mm-hmm. and you can mix them up in your little pond and they they have to go through wet dry cycling it has to be an engine to push things away from equilibrium it's called it mm-hmm. you have, no, to have some kind of an engine to do that yeah and that, <clears> that's <throat> been your specialty in a sense is looking at in in depth the wet dry cycling process that would allow all this to evolve yeah, and it's, it's getting more and more interesting. There's an impact that this may have on artificial intelligence. And really? there's so many fields. Yeah, yeah. there was a, a process philosopher named Matt Segal who's working with us to bring all this, this these discoveries into Whiteheadian philosophy. And yeah. last month I talked to a Franciscan sister, Ilya Delio, who's interested in the theological aspects of this origin of life work. Mm-hmm. You mean this sort of has a, a little echo of the contact consortium that you used to host. Well, it's sort of in a new context, but it's still thinking about meeting new life forms and what's our it, responsibility as members of the human civilization. <laughs> that's a wonderful recollection, uh, Mrs. Future, and that the yeah, it's still contact. It's still the contact consortium mission, and in fact. We were down at the SETI Institute. That's where we used to do the original contact conference with Jim Finero. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, by SETI. Jim from Cabrillo here. Yeah, from Cabrillo. Yeah, there we are back again, and it's the same people. There was Seth Shostak there, and (laughs) you know the same. You know, he's wearing the same blue vest that he's worn for thirty-five years. So, so what do you think after (laughs) all these all this time? Have have these has the ideas changed much since? they really have. The, the mm-hmm. field is no longer really looking at origin of life in the oceans, at the hydrothermal vents. But Dave and I and many other colleagues have shifted, have done that paradigm shift in science where people are now back on land in the little pool scenario. And so that that's kind of a big thing to have witnessed and been a, a sure. small part of. Yes, no the longer light. the middle of the ocean, but the edge, the shore. It's still water, yeah. lots of water. Yeah, right, fresh water, we think it's fresh water. And if it's driven by cycles of hot and cold and splashes, and if you go to, a, you know, if you go to one of these hydrothermal springs, it looks like nature's chemistry set, all the different colors and acidity and the pools are mixing. It's just like the richest chemical environment you can imagine. And of course, it's probably what you needed to start something like life. Yeah, and even today, I'd say when we did yeah. our baths there, it felt very healing to our biology. Yeah. Very restful. Lots of free energy and from the heat of the hot spring and then you got sun coming down and it's like it's nurturing in a way. It's jacuzzi origin of life. You recharge and then go back to Burning Man. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It really worked well. (laughs) We had the best of both worlds there. Mm. It's so amazing how close that hot springs is to the Burning Man site. Yeah, and the Burning Man organization, they bought the whole property. So they they own that. They own it now? Wow. Thousands they of acres. Yeah, they, wow. they bought it. You can go there with a permit. There's people living there all the time. There's a ranch manager. And that's where they get the water for the playa. The, the big water trucks come through a system there and they get filled up. Mm-hmm. And then they go back to the playa to water down the dust hmm. on the roads. That's where it comes from. Right. Yeah, didn't that spring get created artificially? It wasn't always yes. there, right? Yeah, it was by ranchers drilling down to water source for their cattle. And then up came this hot water that cattle couldn't drink. <laughs> and, and then it just kept spraying up, and it's high, high in silica, so it grew these colorful towers, mm. which you guys saw. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah, they look like volcanoes. Yeah, or upside-down stalactites. Yeah. Yes, with mm-hmm. uh, spurting uh, hot and water. 
and they're packed with microbes. You can see the color is in there. Just microbes are living inside the stone that's being made. These brightly uh, colored stones, for some reason, they make brightly yeah. colored. Uh, yeah, they've got extremophiles in there just cranking away and making those colors. And it's a scene right out of early Earth, really. I know. Just look up Fly Geyser, anyone. You'll see a picture. It's just unbelievable. And they're very biological. It's rock, and it looks like, but it's smooth. And it's formed from the, I guess, the water drying over time. That wet dry cycle is helping to create the very towers themselves. And the BBC was flying a drone over top as I was going and breaking a piece off. Oh, yeah. They allowed me to go and do that. And I was like, I don't want to fall in here, but. <laughs> <laughs> you seem to have a special connection with the BBC, Bruce. I mean, I remember when they they came to, to visit you and us at uh, Burning Man, where yes, you're telling Peter, Peter Day. Day. You were entertaining mm -hmm. Peter Day on Did. his Burning Man trip. <laughs> and those guys were like in suits, and they said, no, you don't do Burning Man that way. So they came back the next day uh, with the top part of their suits on, but the, but they're just their shorts or trousers. Yeah, and that <laughs> picture of Peter Day with his hair all blasted with dust and everything went around the entire BBC. <laughs> <laughs> And his assistant, Queen Stuckey, <laughs> who's still a friend on Facebook. Yeah, Neil Koenig, who is, I, I got in touch with when we were in Britain during huh. the Queen's Jubilee. Neil Koenig, who was the third guy helping to drive, get the recording done. And they were using sat phones, iridium phones, to ah, call yes. BBC. Yes, know, that 2003 was 2003 or four. yeah. That was the time, yeah. Now they're looking at some replacement of the iPhones called the Tesla phone. You hear the rumors of that? No. The idea that if Elon can't get the frequencies he wants on the iPhone, he's going to create his own phone. And you'll just be able to use Starlink wherever you go with your yeah, phone. Interesting. Interesting. We, yeah. We the, live in pie, a, a, the Pi phone. The Pi phone, right. The Pi phone. We, we live in a different world, and yet the world's the same. It's the same kind of businesses and opportunities and different players, but they're filling the same ecological niches. Mm -hmm. Right. Pioneering into bold new worlds where we haven't been before and then bringing all our baggage <laughs> yeah so you guys if i could ask dr future what is the future of dr future well we're going to morph back into media technologies that we play with on the net yeah. i think the am and fm radio is going through a transition right now and we're going to try to bring as many of our listeners as possible to the new medium sad that AM and FM are going away, but the, it's the, the nature of change that we're in the middle of right I now. Think, I think podcasting has replaced talk radio. Yeah. Oh, big time. Yeah, and YouTube. Well, also there's Clubhouse. On. Yeah, I think what podcasting lacks is the live call-in dynamic, and I think that's what makes radio so beloved by people, mm -hmm. is that it really is a conversation in a community, and it's in real time. So I think that we're going to do our best to preserve that aspect of our show, but we're also going to bring to it our classic archives. You know, the kind of stuff Alan is posting on Facebook all the time is going to get even better because we'll be doing the best of our regular adventures, but we're going to also be mixing them in with some of the best of our archives Ooh. and doing a live show telling stories yeah. with our friends. The plus, you, yeah, go ahead. You guys are up to like 700 shows? Yeah, around 700. Yeah. Yes, God. and they'll be an archive. We've got you back to 2011 wow. in the archive. So that's that, something. That is, huh? Yeah. That is something. A little yeah. snip of yeah. history of yeah. our very own tribe. No, no, we get to get the right AIs to help us sort it all. Then we can make it really useful. And next week, I'm preparing to talk to Jim Rutt of the Jim Rutt podcast. 
we're doing our second show and it's all going to be about the implications for AGI, artificial general intelligence by, oh. from the origin of life. Can we talk about that some more? Maybe a little bit like right after the break? Certainly. Oh, right. that would be all fun. Right. Yeah. All right. AI. Well, that's one of our favorite topics. Yes, it is. The future will be dancing with that a lot. Is this Al or the AI Al? <laughs> AL or AL? AL. <laughs> Okay, we are back. We're talking to Dr. Bruce Damer about the origins of life, and we're going to talk about uh, life and AI. But first, but first, we have a question from the audience from Gabby in New Jersey. She says, it's clear how prokaryotes and eukaryote cells develop, but how did we make the jump, evolutionarily speaking, to complex intelligent life? And how much of a role did microbes play in that evolution? Those are huge and wonderful questions, and it's sort of outside of my expertise. It's more uh, the plant, animal, biologist. You know, There's still big questions, I, huh? Yeah, big in this questions. collaboration, I know you bring a lot more of the computer intelligence side to the equation, and you team up with David Diemer, who is the bio astrobiologist, and you guys do a lot of field work together, and you are in charge of samples. <laughs> what, what I can suggest for Gabi is that what we're discovering and proposing that the origin of life was deeply collaborative. Mm. That we didn't come from a common ancestor that was sort of duking it out, you know, for primacy at all. The origin of life, the common unit is a communal colony. So that the protocells that are a little, little sludge at the edge of the pool grow up into living cells, but they can never live separately. We come from a common communal origin, and then that communal system was deeply collaborative. It's like a marketplace. Some things could eat sunlight and generate carbohydrates for things that are living below them, and that's still what happens in microbial consortia today. So that's a deep thing. And then when you look through that lens, you potentially realize that competition, the survival of the fittest, is going on, but it's going on inside of a framework of deep collaboration and sharing. So it's really a dual system that's driving life forward. Mm. Sure, it's like if it was a classroom, there's the kids that run for office and then there's the kids that just knuckle down and do what's expected. And then there's the kids that hate being there and are trying to do something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and then the kid that's, that's trying to be the toughest one on the playground and the other kid that's networking. You know, and, and this was this was true in primate communities, of course, the alpha and beta males and blah, blah. But in terms of this deep network, when we look, when we peer down the microscope and we see these clusters of protocells, mm. we realize that there the network comes alive. Like something is happening in one can create products that will diffuse through the protocell blob and end up in another one, which will trigger another reaction. And that creates an actual network of symbolic message passing, which is new in the universe. This can't exist in just physics, just rocks and water alone. It has to have this sophisticated thing. So when you get networks powering up, then if you add memory to the networks, little short strands of RNA and DNA that can record things and make copies, then you have the elements for life. We call it 
probability, interconnection, memory. Those are the three things in the soup that have to churn away and that they can create a system that's capable of, of transforming a world mm. and that this PIM formalism is still going on. It, like when here we are in Dr. Future, we're crowded into a, a thing called a call, called a radio show, which then allows us to network and mm-hmm. share information. And then we record the show and that's cultural evolution. So that's PIM as well. So PIM is at, at all scales from life's origins all the way up through tech and mm-hmm. culture. Mm. Yes. And if I reach into my memory, what you're describing sounds a little bit like Bruce Lipton's ideas of what he calls cellular intelligence. Yeah. A lot of what he's talking about is things are happening at the membranous boundary. Mm. Yeah, that's it's quite some similar ideas there. Right. Yeah, the membrane is the brain of the cell because it has the sensors and the feelers and it's testing its environment so that it can gauge its own appropriate response and it can be open or it can be closed. It can feel safe and expansive or it can feel fearful and contractive and the life inside the cell is running the show. <laughs> and, and if you look at AI, Mrs. Future, the AI right now is in, in a, a phase called deep neural networks, which is surprisingly successful, but it's in a cul-de-sac in that deep neural networks are fairly narrow and vertical applications that do one thing well. But when you throw general problems at them, you know, you'd have to train them. You'd have to build a whole new system. They're not comprehensive generalists. They're specialists. They're specialists. And so the push now by people like Ben Goertzel is to do AGI, artificial general intelligence. This is hard. This will be a hard transition to make. So we make a transition over to graphs instead of these deep neural networks, graphs of knowledge, graphs of state machines kind of like the way neurons interact because the human brain looks nothing like a deep neural network in ai i Mm -hmm. mean the the human brain doesn't use back back propagation or dnns are are really good tools but they don't have much biological similarity but if you use some of doug engelbart's ideas of creating the the technology to be friendly to human intelligence Perhaps an interface between the AIs would increase human intelligence if it's a good yeah, interface. In fact, Jim Keller has a wonderful interview with Jordan Peterson and his podcast recently that he's an amazing AI guy. If anybody wants to, to dissolve their panic about AI eating the world or becoming <laughs> intelligent, listen to yeah. Jim Keller because he's a technologist who's built all these systems. And he actually explains what they really are, which is tools there are like human prosthetics and he proposed yeah. that an AI in the future will become kind of your best friend. It'll monitor your health. It'll know all your human connections. It'll know what you're eating. It'll know more about you than your best buddy yeah. actually, or even your partner. Yeah. And, Maybe and even more than my laptop. More than your laptop. And so these AIs that come in through health apps will change our lives. They'll, they'll give us financial advice that is, makes sense yeah. for us. Well, see, Uh, Bruce, this is all typical of our era of the think different kind of developers of technology where we really are looking for this kind of augmentation and enhancement. And we don't have the fears that have come up as the general population has been saying, well, what about our privacy? What about the surveillance state? What What about about the the Terminator technology? The Terminator. yeah. Yeah. All of these things that people project their fears. And then you need somebody like, you said Jim Keller or somebody I like to listen to a lot is Lex Friedman 
Mm-hmm. Um, and they tell you really what's really going on with trying to manage this ocean of data that is being collected willy-nilly with so much information that it's almost overwhelming and then trying to make it useful. It's not really quite the thing that people are afraid of, but it's the beginning of the thing that people are afraid of. <laughs> I'm not afraid of any of it. I, no, the, me the, either. The fear, the fear that Jim brings up is it's always about people. Somebody with malintent will use any tool to create all kinds of mayhem, and we have to focus our attention on healthy, healed together mature people that are leading various ventures this is where we need to focus on as people sure Mm. and we need to focus on systems that elevate the best in those in our people so that they are the ones that are leading the show instead of the trolls (laughs) Mm -hmm. well it's easy to criticize yes easy to criticize hard to fix it's hard to be uh like elon i suppose that would be interesting well as soon as you yeah, go ahead. The good news the good news is we are literally running our companies, our supply chain, our learning systems, uh, our medical, all of that infrastructure is working better than it ever has. Yeah. And we're just better. We have data, we have sensors in everything, we have smart people, we have instant communication, instant access to like we're building something here on the farm and I can just look up how do I mud and texture a wall? And so I could like become a wall, a sheetrock person Expert. in one day. Sure. You know, it's amazing. Yes. Yeah. The internet is delivering the universe of knowledge on demand. Yes, nothing like YouTube <laughs> movies for learning that kind of stuff. Seek and you yeah. will find. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like super optimistic. I wouldn't want to live in any other time in, in history. Except Absolutely. maybe the times ahead that keep getting better. Hey, yeah. And what do you think of KSEO as an eco station? Yeah, I mean, uh, track the uh, biology around here. It's supposed to be a unique lagoon. Yeah, who's going to come into that building? No one knows. It's a mystery. We don't know. You talk to MZ, he's interested in ideas. Yes, anyway, fielding uh, offers. Yeah, so any ideas you have on that, Bruce? Most appreciated. Meanwhile, thanks so much for being our guest today. It's really great, as usual, chatting with you. Yeah, wonderful to be back. That was wonderful. And helping us to complete this era of AMFM radio. Yes. Experiments in that arena. And covering the range from origin of life to where will we eventually end up. (laughs) (laughs) We look forward to having you on our new platform. Yeah. Yes, indeed. All right. right, Well, and if people want to know more, damer.com, D-A-M-E-R. Yep, that's a good place to go. Okay, and you're really getting into uh, speaking lately, too. Yeah, Google my name and look at videos. There's a lot of them. Excellent, excellent. This is KSCO Santa Cruz. Thank you, Bobby.